please join with me in today's scripture reading from 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 9. In the Pew Bibles, this is on page 258. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bela Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against uh, Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? This is the word of the Lord. Ark of the Covenant. Movies have been made about this uh, box, and uh, it's a golden box, so it's actually quite valuable. But there's something very, very special about this box, and the ark is special because of what it represents, and it represents God's presence among his people. That's why this box is so special. Now, the story of the box, this sacred box, teaches us that the worship of God is the lifeblood of the kingdom of God. So, what are we to do with this passage that Myra just read for us, and, and what are we being taught here? And so let's just start with verses 1 and 2 and see where God wants our focus to be. Verses 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So David gathered this sizable amount of people, this, this group of men, 30,000 of them, and they were at Baal of Judah, uh, which is about eight miles west of Jerusalem. And on the lid of the ark was, was this uh, cherubim, and, and you can read more about the description, the information of the ark in Exodus 25, as well as in Numbers 10. It's in there for you. And so we're going to look at the end of Numbers chapter 10, starting in verse 35. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So, when the ark moved, it was God moving with them. And when the ark rested, it was God remaining with them. And the ark isn't some idol, or it's not some image of God. It's a sign of God's presence among his people. And this ark was found in the innermost room in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, representing the presence of God among his people. Now what exactly is it representing about God? And so for one, it is representing God's rule. First Chronicles chapter 28, starting in verse 2. 
Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. So something to keep in mind are, is that footstools are for kings. And so this is speaking of kingship. This is speaking of a king's rule. And so the Ark is representing rule, It's also representing reconciliation. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant played this role in the Day of Atonement. And so the Day of Atonement was when the high priest on one day of of the year could go into this Holy of Holies where the Ark was and the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice for himself and sprinkle that blood on the front of the ark and on the lid of the ark. And then he'd take the blood that was the sacrifice for the people of God and do the same thing, sprinkle it on the front of the ark, sprinkle it on the lid of the ark. And here God is reconciling his people with atoning blood. So day of atonement. So when we look at the ark, we need to look at God's reconciliation. That God is pardoning our sins, his people's sins, at a very costly price of life. That that's what it takes. That God forgives his people. So the ark represents God's rule. It represents God's reconciliation. And it also represents God's revelation. There's something inside the ark. It's not hollow. So Exodus 25, starting in verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So inside the ark was the testimony. The Ten Commandments, the covenant law, the the, the revealed will of God is inside the ark. His word, his revelation, it's revealed in the ark, right? So God's rule, God's reconciliation, God's revelation, that's what the ark represents. And that God is among his people. And we see this representation of the ark in the representation of Jesus Christ as Prophet, priest, and king. So Jesus as prophet in declaring the word of God to us just as the Ark of the Covenant was a revelation to the people of God with the word of God in it. Jesus as priest in his sacrifice on the cross through the sacrifice of his own blood to reconcile us to God. Jesus as king 
ruling in heaven and who will rule on earth. And this is the significance of what the ark represents. Now in the past couple of weeks, we looked at chapter 5, where David finally became king after many chapters. And he's finally king of all 12 tribes of Israel. And and after chapter 5, what what happened next? What happens right after the last two weeks that we talked about? Now keep in mind, last week we also talked about how events aren't necessarily arranged chronologically in the narrative of 2 Samuel, but sometimes topically. So what does the author point out first after David is made king of Israel? And it's right here in chapter 6. The thing that the author points out first is the Ark of the Covenant. He first points out the presence of God. That that is the most important item for the author to point out after David is made king. That the worship of God from the people of God is of the utmost importance. That this has to be the priority. This is the greatest concern for the people of God. That this takes precedence over any other matter is the presence of God. Not political alliances, not how government is run, not anything else, that the worship of God from his people is what is paramount, that there needs to be a focus on this. And this is where our focus needs to be for ourselves. This is where God wants our focus to be kept. This is what sustains the life of the people of God. It wasn't the victories over the Jebusites in chapter 5. It wasn't the victory over the Philistines in chapter 5. You might defeat the Jebusites and the Philistines of your life. But that isn't what is going to sustain your entire life. The presence of God, the worship of God is what sustains your life. And the priority of our life isn't just to get through the hardship that is right in front of us right now because it just gets replaced by another one when you're done with the one in front of you, right? It's just ongoing for the rest of your life. I know, very encouraging message so far. But the priority is the presence of God in your life and the worship of God in our life. And that's the constant that sustains us through whatever hardships are going to come our way because they are. Our church constantly goes through hardships. And you as individuals constantly go through hardships. Life is not pain-free. Life is not suffering-free. Life is not fear-free. And if you are living in a pain-free, suffering-free, fear-free state, I just encourage you to enjoy it while it lasts. Right? Just, just enjoy it. Good for you. I have to warn you that it's not always going to be that way. But what we can have through all of the junk of life is the presence of God. And to worship God even when life isn't what you think is the best that it can be. And this is one of the reasons why Sunday worship matters. This is why it's a priority 
to gather together, to worship together, to have this focused time where we pay attention to the presence of God with us. How often do you get this time slot to do that in your life? Like it, it, it's rare throughout the week, isn't it? When you're caught up in your work week, when you're caught up in doing your errands and chores and whatever else you need to do with kids or whatever it may be, you're always busy with other things in your life. And the primary focus of the church, this may disappoint some of you, but it isn't fellowship and it isn't community. Even though I know a lot of people, you come here for that. Like I've heard you say that. But that's not our primary focus of gathering. And it's not even service to our community and doing good to the community. It's not evangelism. It's not some justice-oriented issue. It's not about programs or ministries or what can be provided to our families or anything like that. All of those are important elements to the church, but it's not primary. And if you think it is, I need to refocus you according to 2 Samuel chapter 6 that the primary focus is the worship of God. That's the focus. That's the primary focus. That worship of an ever-present God who rules and reconciles and reveals himself among us. That his presence is among us. Psalm 42 verse 2, it reads, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63 a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. The sanctuary. Beholding your power and glory. And so the primary Focus, that the priority is to focus on the presence of God, the worship of God. And it's not that I won't be preaching and teaching, right? But that's part of the word of God and, and sharing those things. But to focus on the presence of God. Focus on that priority. Um, starting next week for the next month, we're going to have this teaching series on the values of the church. And if you don't know the values of our church, it's integrated scripture, whole life service, thriving diversity, spiritual family. And all in line with our vision of inviting people to follow Jesus and experiencing life with the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm most excited about for is, is worshiping God through this whole time. Because week after week, I, I'm, I'm working. And, and yes, I do get to experience the worship of God absolutely every Sunday. But I'm excited that I just can worship. And I don't have to have these other obligations as the elders will be taking on some of those responsibilities. And I'll be doing other things at the church that I'm excited about too that is not the priority but important elements of the church. And one of those is I'll be serving in the children's ministry. I'm excited about that. 
they have me slotted for um, ask, ask Him Anything. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that time. Like, kids have, like, the best questions. Like, my, my kids are my best teachers. Like, they, they absolutely make me dig and research and, and read and all that stuff. So, but what I'm most excited about is that there will be Sundays when I just get to worship and the other things about a Sunday aren't going to take as much of my bandwidth. That I can just be amongst everybody. The primary focus God wants us to keep is his presence. And in our worship of him. Let's carry on to verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So, like, awesome praise band, right? It's, it's a celebration. But then all of this just comes to a screeching halt. Like, if you can just imagine, like, party, party, celebration, and then this happens. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. A very natural reaction, right? You're, you're just reacting. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. What? Like, what? Come on. Like, why? Why did you put this there? Now I've got to explain it, God. Like, what? Now, this does get you thinking about whether the Bible is true or not for some people, right? Some people are just like, what in the world? Like I... People can look at this and think, like, this is why I can't believe the Bible. This is why, because, because of things like this. Like, this is absurd. Like, this is so strange. But I, I look at this a little bit differently. I look at this as to why I do believe the Bible. And the reason is this. Because who would ever record a story like this if the aim is to convert people to your faith or to share about the goodness of God? Why would you share a story like this? You would just leave it out. You only record a story like this because it happened and it's true. So you have to record it. So that it is true, then now we have to explain this because this, this just doesn't seem to be a good selling point for God. Like, it's, it's not. Like, this is terrible. This is terrible marketing. Right? To, to convince people of having faith in God, you want to present God in such a way that is attractive, that draws people to Him. And this isn't doing it. This, this is not the way to do it from a person's perspective. Now, if God was created by people, and who in their right mind would put a story like this in there? It's not a compelling story for converts to believe. So then what else can this story be except for the truth? That it happened. Because there's no motive to convince people about your God by inventing a story like this. Verse 8, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, in order to understand 2 Samuel 6, you need to go back to Numbers chapter 4. 
Because in Numbers 4 is where the Israelites are given these very detailed instructions on how to transport the entire tabernacle, where to take it down, how the priests were to to cover the Ark of the Covenant, how the Ark was to be moved. Essentially, there are three rules in Numbers 4. No looky, no touchy, no pushy-pully. Like Those are the rules, right? No looking, no touching, no pushing, and no pulling. Right? That, those are the rules. So Numbers 4 doesn't explicitly say no pushing or no pulling, but it does say that it needs to be carried. So yes, pushing and pulling, like on a cart. There is no cart in Numbers 4. No using a cart. Numbers chapter 4, starting in verses... Well, I'm going to skip around because I don't want to read the whole thing. So first, verses 4 through 6, uh, and then we'll, we'll skip ahead. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. So he's telling you explicitly, the most holy things. When the camp is set out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that cloth olive blue and shall put in its pole. Skip down to verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. It's very clear. Very clear. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. Skip down to verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. What does Numbers chapter 4 mean? It means God doesn't want people to die. Because he warns them, lest they die. He's saying, I don't want you guys to die. So this is how you have to do it. Otherwise, you will die. And so God is putting up this huge warning sign. Extremely high voltage, you touch, you die. You look, you die. You push or pull, you die. It's this huge danger sign. It's so obvious. It's in Numbers chapter 4. You will die. And so God is laying this out really clearly with extreme detail about all of this and in his mercy he's laying all of this out for them so there's no surprise you do these things you're gonna die and he does not want his people to die and so you have to have numbers chapter 4 in order to understand 2nd Samuel chapter 6 and even then some people still might not like what happened to Uzzah And they wonder, how can God do that? Can't God cut him some slack? Well, it wasn't that God damned him to eternal hell. Uzzah did lose his earthly life as it was laid out clearly what would happen if he did this. And so as an example for you and I, there's this high voltage sign. 
And if it says, you touch this, you will die. Well, you go on and touch it. What's going to happen? You're going to die. It's not a surprise. There, There are no surprises there. And so is it someone else's fault if you go on and touch it? No, it's yours. You touched it. And it's not like God is doing that. Like he weren't, God didn't do anything wrong. It's clearly laid out how things are. And of course, there might be people who don't like it, but it doesn't change the fact that the wire is high voltage. And if you touch it, you die. It doesn't change that. And so you and I, we've been given so many warnings throughout the scriptures and God has clearly laid it out for us. And you and I have the agency to follow or not follow what he has laid out for us. You might not like it, but it is what it is. You might not like the way that God is God. Now, if that is you, you need to be very careful because you have a God complex and that is very arrogant and it is very dangerous. Now, there are a couple of ways to approach God with this. One way is to complain and gripe and be angry like David did. Or later on, what David did was he trembled. Second Samuel leads us to the better of these two options. right? Verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? See, God is God. And God is to be reverently feared. And we make mistakes when we don't realize... And remember who we're dealing with. And this is something that Americans do quite often. We're pretty arrogant as a people, especially when we're traveling internationally. That's why people put like Canadian flags on their backpack when they're even Americans, because they they don't they they want to like I'm I'm Canadian. But but Americans do this when we visit other countries. We we. We just assume, because we have so many freedoms here, that those freedoms carry with us to other countries that we visit. And we think that whatever pertains to us here, we we get to bring that with us. That our rights as Americans are recognized internationally. and And it's just very arrogant. And it's very dangerous to assume that everyone recognizes and respects our rules. And so it is with the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, even God's very own people, even his very own children, we forget who God is and what he has told us is holy and unholy, righteous and unrighteous. And God is holy and so is his kingdom and his holiness is to be feared. Now, you and I, we don't have to be terrified about God. But it is a good idea to have a healthy dose of fear about God. Because God really means what he says. He really means it. 
that warning sign is not just like for play. And it's not like, uh, I'll change my mind. What he deems holy is holy. What he deems righteous is righteous. He doesn't change his mind that, oh, that's, that's, what was unrighteous before is now righteous. What was unholy before is now holy. That, that's not God. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all the, that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Now why was David now rejoicing? Because what happened with Uzzah wasn't the final act. Like David is afraid, like, oh man, what does this mean now? Does that mean like God's not with us anymore? What does this mean? And the ark was to be a blessing, and this is what happened with the household of Obed-Edom. You see that there's this tension that we live in, and we'll see this more clearly as, as we continue reading. Let's go on, verses 13 through 15. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And I'm sure David and all of his leadership, they reread Numbers chapter 4. They're like, "Um, read it again. Read it again. I don't care if this is the 500th time. Read it again. What are we supposed to do? What are we not supposed to do? I don't want that other thing happening again. Read it. So you can bet no cart used this time. No cart to transport the ark. Now this cart was not something that they created. This cart was something that they borrowed from the Philistines used in 1 Samuel chapter 6 when the Philistines took the ark. And the Philistines weren't responsible for the same thing because they don't know Numbers chapter 4. These are pagans. These pagans. But the Israelites, they knew better. They know Numbers chapter 4, but they chose to copy these pagans and how they did things rather than how God told them to do things. Why? Well, it's easier. The engineering of a cart is much better than multiple guys carrying this thing on a pole. We can get this a lot further, faster. Let's just do it that way. Doesn't that sound so familiar with Christians in our world today? That we just follow the ways of the world out of convenience, out of popularity, out of whatever the reasons may be, even though God has said, do things this way. Don't fornicate, wait till marriage. But what do many people do? It's the way of the world. This is how you find out about your wife. This is how you do this thing. It's unholy. God really means what he says. That's just one example. We do this thing with lots of things. How you guys view things, believe things. Like, is it a biblical way of doing things? Is it a righteous, holy way of doing things? Or is it Philistines using a cart? Well, the Israelites learned their lesson this time. They correct themselves. That's called repentance. God, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to change my ways. And God forgives. That's the mercy and the grace of the Lord. That they can rejoice again. That they can sing and dance again. 
And we constantly make mistakes just like these Israelites do. But there's this constant tension living as Christians in this world. It's constant. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to eat. Each one, then all the people departed each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. And above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, something I want to point out is something in verses 12, 14 through 16, and And take a look at David's actions. Verse 12, David rejoicing. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Verse 15, David shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16, David leaping and dancing before the Lord. David is celebrating. David is rejoicing. He is glad. But there's another tragic occurrence. In verse 6, if we look back, the tragedy was the death of Uzzah. And then here's this next tragedy in Michael, David's wife. And rather than be called David's wife, look how the author points out three times that Michael is Saul's daughter. Verses 16, 20, and 23. And this is a purposeful tool used by the author to point out that Michael is like Saul. Saul's daughter, and not David's wife. And she can't appreciate David's joy for God, that she despised him in her heart. And and this is a tragic thing, that she can't see David's joy in God. Now, what's the author doing? Well, the author wants us to look at the story from the first part of chapter 6 with the second part of chapter 6, to to look at the story of Uzzah, and then to look at the story of Michael. And then to put these things together so that we can gather what he wants us to learn. Now in the story of Uzzah, we can forget that the God who rules, reconciles, and reveals, that God is holy. And we can get so comfortable and we can get so casual and friendly with God that we don't tremble at God anymore. He's just a buddy. Hey, what's up? Do me a favor. Get me out of this mess. I need a car. I want a house. And you just kind of get really casual. And then in the second part of the story is Michael, 
who can forget that the God who rules, reconciles, and reveals is a joyful God, is a forgiving God. And that person can get so uptight and so proper with God and how things appear that they don't rejoice and they don't dance and they don't shout and they don't make noise and they don't leap before God anymore. So there's this tension in the life of the believer to be like Uzzah, so informal and overly casual and irreverent and not honoring and respecting the laws of God that are clearly marked before. Or you can be like a Michael who is extremely orderly and very formal, but very cold. Back to the presence of God. Are we moved by the presence of God? Are you thrilled and delighted with what God is doing? And the purpose of the narrative is to hold these two people in tension to see that God is holy and at the same time to be rejoiced. To live out this paradox of holiness and celebration. And sometimes it just it doesn't seem that it can work because you can go into a church and it's like celebratory and everything and so happy and stuff and then there's just like no reverence for the law of God or there's like an overly reverence for the law of God and there's no celebration at all. It's just really dry. And so it's just tough because we need to work these things out together. That we need to tremble in fear but at the same time rejoice with joy in God. And that's the same thing in like parenting also, right? You don't want your children terrified of you, but there needs to be a realization like, I'm your father. I'm your mother. We're not just buddy buddies and chums. Like I, I'm your dad and you're my child. And there are responsibilities with that. But then you can't get overly strict and domineering and overly just oppressive on them because they need to be able to rejoice with you and they need to be enjoying and celebrating with you and having fun with you and playing with you. And that's just a tough thing to do sometimes. I want to end with this psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. And this is the tension. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is this tension in 2 Samuel 6. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are very thankful for your revelation, for your word. You have given us so much that those in the Old Testament, those in David's day, do not have, you know, they, they did not have the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh to die on the cross and to be raised from the grave on the third day and to have this anticipation of you returning. Like they, they didn't have all of this, and we do. And sometimes, God, I need to apologize for this in terms of um, taking things just too casually with you and thinking you're just like a big brother or just 
just not realizing your righteousness and your holiness. And then other times just not rejoicing and just being very cold and not celebrating. Lord, we ask for our church that you would keep our priority on your presence. In essence, that's what heaven is, is, is being in your presence. And so we ask that we focus on that and that our worship is glorifying and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's uh, take communion together. And if anyone is, is wanting, needing prayer, um, Susanna is in the right front pew. She'd be honored to pray with you. And, and Mike is in the center pew, the front pew here. He'd be honored to pray with you. The people in, in David's time, um, I guess they had these elements, but they just didn't really have the same meaning to them. Um, they, they did celebrate the Passover. So anytime after the Passover, these elements were actually present because this wafer is actually the centerpiece matzah within the sleeves um, that Jesus, when he took it and broke it, that's what it was. So they just didn't know what it meant until Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper showed that to them, that this is me, broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Let's take this in remembrance of Christ. And this fruit of the vine symboling the blood of Christ when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, sprinkling that blood on the front of the ark and on the lid of the ark. They didn't know this about Christ, that his blood atoning us. We take this in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us, awaiting his return. Jesus, thank you for these beautiful symbols to show us what you did for us and to have us remember. And we know, Lord, that your promises don't have an expiration date and we're still waiting for your return 2,000 years later. But we know that you're good on your promises and so we pray, Lord, for your equipping to keep focused on your presence with us. And we lift our worship up to you. In Jesus' name, amen.